This episode is a little different. Over the last five weeks, we've been meeting to discuss the book, Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. For our final session, we were joined by author Daniel Sokach to talk about his thought-provoking book. The following is a recording of that conversation. You have read his book. Um, Here's just a little bit of background about the author of this book. Daniel Sokach is the CEO of the New Israel Fund um, and has been since 2009. Um, And it's the largest organization funding the advancing of democracy, justice, equality, and a strong civil society in Israel. And you'll probably say more about it tonight. Uh, Before joining NIF, Daniel served as the executive director of the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco and the Peninsula and Marin and Sonoma counties. Um, And I think we overlapped in L.A. when you were the executive director of the Progressive Jewish Alliance. And I was but a wee rabbinical student and sometimes congregant of Ikar, which shared a hallway with. Even then, even then we knew you'd do great things. Oh, Um, well, thanks. Um, So Daniel's been named four times to the forwards, you know, the forward 50, an annual list of 50 leading Jewish decision makers and opinion shapers. He's written articles in all the leading newspapers and magazines. He holds an MA from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, a JD from Boston College Law School and a BA from Brandeis. Married, two daughters, lives in San Francisco, as you already learned. Um, And on a fun personal note, as we were discussing before you all came back, Um, He's been in the background of the Jewish Emergent Network, which is the network of seven emergent communities of which Mishkan is one, um, having been either a founder or on the board of Ikar and The Kitchen in San Francisco, um, which is one of the communities we're going to be traveling to Israel with this summer. Um, So just just welcome for all of the points of intersection and um, and commonality that we share um, in the past, which points to, I think, why this book resonated with so many Mishkan people now in the present. So you are joining us for the fifth and final session of this book group featuring Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. I understand this is your second book talk tonight. Um, (laughs) So thank you for being with us. Um, And just to give you a a little bit of a background, we started this five-week series by actually doing a curriculum designed by resetting the table, um, setting up the dual narratives, the dominant Palestinian and dominant Zionist narrative, um, to practice doing a very sort of structured, nuanced, deep dive into the founding of the state of Israel and kind of the founding contradiction of the state of Israel as understood by Palestinians and, and Zionists, you know, sort of either the war that resulted in the independence of the state of Israel or the war that resulted in the Nakba and and trying collectively to become more familiar with and more comfortable with understanding um, the Palestinian perspective specifically so that we can speak with less defensiveness and more creativity and resilience around this topic um, and around some of the words and issues that can make talking about Israel so challenging. so everybody, everybody has the link to the interview with you and Rabbi Sharon Browse that I sent out uh, five weeks ago. Um, you have been being interviewed by people all over the country, um, much more, uh, much more knowledgeable and articulate about this subject than I. So I thought I would not interview you. The class will interview you. Um, so 
before I let them loose. And I will call on you one by one. Um, some of you know who you are because I actually wrote back to your emails and said, I will be you know, calling on you. Um, go ahead and, and just read the exact question you sent me um, to maximize our time together. But before, before we go into questions, Daniel, welcome. Is there anything you'd like to open with or say? <laughs> thank you, Rabbi. Look, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I can't tell you how honored and flattered I am that you have spent this much time um, talking about and reading and talking about this book. Uh, it, it, it's, inc- it, you know, I would have said yes to your rabbi anyway, because as I said earlier, before you all joined, I don't say no to the Emergent Network. Uh, I was the founding board member of ECAR, and I was the first board chair of The Kitchen. Um, so those are much more onerous tasks than just showing up and doing a book talk. Um, so, but, but, but the fact that you've spent this much time, um, really, really means the world to me. In fact, there's another synagogue, uh, not far from you in St. Louis that is doing a similar thing. And they asked me to come out in April. And so I agreed. Uh, so I'm, 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 <clears throat> I'm, I'm honored that people are taking the book so seriously. Um, I'm going to forget the name of the synagogue. It's the big reform one. Andrew, We'll know he's on Rabbi J- Jim Bennett is the rabbi. Um, someone will know. Oh, uh, Shara Emeth. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. Former St. Louis resident here. So, yeah. Nice. Great synagogue. Um, so and I will be in Chicago at some point in the in the well, COVID willing in the coming year. So I just want to thank you for for um, for inviting me to be with you. It's really an honor for me. And um, and it's uh, it's very moving to me that the book is being received and taken as seriously as it is with you all and with so with so many other uh, folks out there. Awesome. Great. All right. So um, Matthew Rosenberg, would you open us up with a little biographical question that touches on? Sure. First question. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow, no pressure here. Um, so, Daniel, uh, in your book, you tell us a little bit about your background and what gives you um, a unique and unbiased view of Israel. I wonder if you could touch on where, uh, from your background, you might point to that um, builds towards blind spots or where those blind spots might be in your background on these issues of Israel. Yeah, well, thank you for that question, Matthew. And just the one slight corrective that I'll make in, in the way you phrase the question goes to the answer of the question. I never claimed that that I was unbiased. Um, in fact, I, I try to be very clear that I come from a very particular perspective, um, that of a, a progressive American Jew, a proud liberal Zionist who's been deeply connected to this issue um, since I was 16 years old. But but what I just said is is um, is a description of, of, of the, um, what's the, how do you say that word? Ch- the shadows and light. I see it written. I don't know how to say it. Chiascuro. Chiascuro. Yeah, Chiascuro. Yeah. That's the Chiascuro um, for, for me. And it, it illustrates the lacunae that I have um, when, when it comes to this issue. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I take comfort from the fact that I'm an excellent company because there's nobody who doesn't have a blind spot when it comes to this issue. I think what I have been able to do through immersing myself in um, in the work that I've done for the last 12 years or, or even 20 uh, in the fact that I that I did my master's degree in in a good institution focusing on this conflict. That, that's 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 done away with with some of my biases and blind spots, but but not all of them. And. I don't think it's possible for anyone to, to, to not have them. 
and, and I think what is possible is for us to go into this conversation with, uh, with that combination of great curiosity and, um, which, you know, is in the subtitle of the book, but something that's not in the subtitle, which is, uh, deep compassion. Uh, for for all of the perspectives and parties to this conflict, even the ones with which we we don't agree, or I'll, I'll speak personally, even the ones with which I don't agree, and and I try to be really open to understanding, um, to doing my best to understand on a deep level, right? What it is that makes an ultra orthodox Jew in in Me'asharim tick, what it makes what what it takes to to what makes a settler. Right, an ideological settler out in Kiryat Arba tick. Uh, what makes an Islamist militant tick? I think that 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 going into the conversation, understanding that I don't know everything, is the only way to deal with um, the the numerous blind spots and biases that I, like everybody else, bring to the table. Um, but since you asked specifically, and and I probably could have gotten away with that answer, which is an honest answer. But I will say that, you know, I, 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 I named one of my blind spots, um, uh, which is sort of um, and if you read. Well, you did read the book. It was intentional that that I didn't spend a lot of time dealing with the Haredi issue, the ultra orthodox issue. Right. The, the, and, 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 and the intentionality around it was really because I felt that for American Jews and to be clear, I didn't write the book just for us. I wrote it for Americans who are and, and other English speakers who are, and it's now being translated into Japanese and Portuguese. So Brazilian, Portuguese, and Japanese speakers who are curious, confused, and conflicted. But obviously, from my perspective, I wrote, you know, what I knew, which is from the liberal American Jewish perspective. And you all are are a significant part of of the people I wrote for, an American Jewish or connected to Jewish uh, audience. And there, you know, I felt that the issue that receives or has received in my lifetime, the most amount of inter-Jewish conversation has been this issue of religious pluralism and religious freedom. It tends to be the thing that if they care, most American Jews who consider themselves reform, conservative, emergent, reconstruction, you know, renewal, that's kind of what our institutions at least focus on. Um, and so I purposefully, I didn't ignore it. I talk about it a bit, but I didn't go there, which meant that I didn't go. This is like a vidui. It's a much bigger confession than you asked for, because it's not only a blind spot, but it's something that I have mixed feelings about not including. I don't have mixed feelings about not focusing on what I just said. I do think I could have done a chapter on the Haredi to help people understand who they, to help myself and other people understand who they are. The fact that they're not monolithic. Um, you know, and as I watched Stissel, I, I, I thought, yeah, uh, this is, this was my blind spot and I could have done more to introduce people to it. But then again, you got to make choices and the book is already 300 and some odd pages. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, well, so as long as, as long as you're, you know, uh, in, in Vidui mode and confessing mode, um, Terry Freeman, would you, would you ask the question that you brought? Good evening. My question is what part or parts of your book have received the most controversial feedback and why? Do you know what? That is such a great question. And in, in, in part, cause no one's ever asked me and, 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 when I answer it, 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 the answer, I never even thought about it the way you framed it, but the answer is not what I would have thought 
right? Had someone asked me that question. And what I would have thought would be that the chapters about BDS, about apartheid, about anti-Semitism, which I included in the book, obviously, because they are dominating so much of the discourse, and I felt as easy as it would be and comfortable to ignore them, that's not my job, right? My job is to unpack them um, and 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 sort of hope, hopefully give us tools to navigate them. Th- those are That is not what has received the most criticism. What's And it's not been a lot of criticism, thankfully, but the most criticism that that the book has received, my 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 here are my three favorite critiques. Uh, one is um, specifically in reference to the history section. Uh, I was called by a podcaster irritatingly balanced, or irritatingly even handed. I think he said, and um, and I've heard that a little bit from partisans of both sides, right? Um, you know, on the on the. I thought I would hear it from from people who feel that they are supportive of um, or who come from the Palestinian community. And, and I have heard it from from them, you know, not that there's a critique of what I put forward, but that it's such a smaller part of the history than the Jewish part. Although, again, I don't know how I how to avoid that in this kind of book since I am who I am. And I think it's the Jewish part of the of the conversation, which tends to be the narrative that most Americans know. Not all, but most that that is in need of rethinking and and critique. Um, but I also got it from um, from folks from the other side, from the Jewish side, who who felt that I spent far too much time bending over backwards, as one of them put it, to be even handed. By the way, like I'm very proud of that criticism uh, because I did strive for it. But that has been one, and the other one has been um, my publisher's favorite one which was, I got a really nice review in the New York Times, but the one kind of ding that the reviewer gave me was that he said, you know, SoCatch is essentially too hopeful. He relies too much on hope. And, um, and you know, like fair, I suppose, uh, I run the New Israel Fund. I run an organization dedicated to supporting, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israelis who every day work to realize the founding vision of the country. And you you got to have a lot of hope or at least a lot of optimism to do that. But the best criticism of all, which those are the two that really answer your questions, a critique of the last chapter, uh, The Case for Hope, which I thought, you know, was a little bit of a, of a low blow and, and of the history section. But my favorite, well, the best one um, was uh, the criticism that I heard on several occasions. I don't give it a solution. There's no answer. I, I read this book. I thought at the end he would tell us how to resolve this whole conflict. But again, you know, I admit that is not what I provide. Thank you. Thank you. And all of those, all of those pieces of critique and feedback are things that I feel like I heard a little bit of from, from folks in this room too. Um, so I'm going to read something from Debbie Cooper, who's not here. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to read what she wrote. I appreciated so much that the book shed light on new sources of information for me, in particular, the Palestinian narrative around 1948 and why settlements are such a deterrent to the peace process. I knew the argument, but not the rationale. I have a much stronger sense of understanding and nuance. I also felt that the book downplayed the obstacles on the Palestinian side, terror attacks, fear about security, the Palestinian charter, which refuses to acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Does it really say that? And what happened when Israel traded land for peace in Gaza? I believe Daniel's position and stance is balanced and nuanced, so I'd be curious as to why there seemed to be an omission of what (laughs) I've always understood to be significant impediments to peace. There were a couple other people who had similar questions, so I, I allowed Debbie to voice that question that some of you also had. 
Well, first, since as you were reading, Debbie appeared on the chat. So I'm glad Debbie's here. What? Um, Debbie, if I'd known you were going to be here. I'm here. So I'm glad Debbie's with us. Um, so uh, there's a few parts to that question, but but I'll begin by saying I, I did try to um, describe those things. And so... I, I will I will gently push back and, and say that I, I did I did try to give a visceral sense of of why Israelis felt, especially in the early 2000s during the Second Intifada, um, th- th- they lost they lost hope uh, in 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 peace because of the horrifically bloody terror attacks of the of the Second Intifada, and and hopefully the book does show how even though the um, the historical record is not exactly the one that many of us in the Jewish world grew up with, right? There are differences, there are omissions, there are, um, as Matthew might say, blind spots in the way we educate ourselves about Israel. Like, you know, Israel's first 20 years of existence, 19 years of existence were precarious. And um, and it faced uh, a constant existential level threat. Um, the fact is Israel has not faced an existential level threat um, certainly not since the Camp David Accord removing Egypt from from the the the, the chessboard, uh, but but so so I do try to give a sense um, of why Israelis have so much uh, worry and also um, the way that Arab and Palestinian rejectionism also contributed to to the the, the the situation that we're in today. That's point number one. And 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 if 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 readers feel like I didn't do that enough, I hear you. Um, and point number two, something that I said uh, previously, I felt my job in this, in writing this book, having really clarified who I was and, and what my perspective was, was to um, offer up a new, uh, a, an attempt to critique, lovingly critique, right? Like a tochecha at the narrative that we have all grown up with, which, as I said, is not just our dominant dominant narrative in the Jewish community, but the dominant narrative in the American discourse around Israel, which I believe is in need of, of evolution and reassessment um, and 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 critique. And and so, or or put another way, I'm a I'm a liberal American Jew who cares desperately about Israel, and I know Israel really well. Um, and and I and I know I know the Palestinian territories and Palestinians well, but less well. Um, but here, you know, I often say, look, we can have a conversation about what the Palestinians ought to do um, to to and what the Arab world ought to do or what they have done. Right. I think there's a lot of confusion around that. But at the end of the day, um, I'm more concerned with with Israel and the Jewish people in terms of the moral house and ensuring that we've done everything that we can do to make the conditions ripe to resolve the conflict. So would it be better if the entire Arab world recognized Israel's right to exist? Of, co- of course it would be. Um, and by the way, twice now the Arab League has put forward a, a peace offer to Israel uh, with no serious response yet, um, uh, inviting Israel to make uh, to, to make peace with the Palestinians, go back to something like the 67 borders, have some kind of resolution that affirms uh, Palestinians' right to return without having a demographic influx into Israel in exchange for full acceptance, full diplomatic relations with all of the Arab League states. Um, and Israel hasn't responded to that. So b- both sides have 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 missed opportunities to miss an opportunity or not missed opportunities to paraphrase Abba Iban. Um, but, but, uh, but, but what's, what's, what's also the case is that um, in the last couple of decades, the Arab world has also changed 
and starting with Egypt and then Jordan. And now, of course, with the four um, countries that were part of the Abraham Initiative, um, there are uh, now half a dozen countries with formal peace ties with Israel um, and many more. Most of the other ones have informal. I mean, you don't really think the Abraham Accords would happen without Saudi approval, right? The Saudis are the major player, you know, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, and Iran. Those are the big four. Egypt, too. Um, but they're already off the chessboard. So, so, and in terms of the Palestinians, um, look, what I'm about to say may not sit well with everybody, but I think we need to acknowledge the massive power differentiation or distinction between the two sides. One side holds most of the cards when it comes to Israelis and Palestinians, and that side are the Israelis. As for the charter, the Palis- the, the the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the PA did change their charter. Um, they also formally recognized Israel's right to exist, not in 93 with the signing of the Oslo Accords, but in 88, when, um, when under pressure from the mostly young, mostly nonviolent, totally grassroots Palestinian leadership of the first Intifada, Arafat, exiled in Tunis, sees his relevance shrinking and shrinking, understands that what the Palestinian kids on the ground are calling for are two states. They're, he understands it because that's what they say. We want a two state. We want a Palestinian state next to Israel because these are real Palestinians who know Israel isn't going anywhere. And in order to um, not fade away into Tunisian exile irrelevance, Arafat and the PLO jump on it and they say, well, we're also for two states. Um, because the kids on the West Bank are looking to them for leadership. So already in 88, the the PLO recognizes Israel's right to exist. That's reaffirmed in 93. The charter is changed. So I know that many people hear that that's not the case. I'm not sure what to say about that, except that if you you look at the history, if you read the book, um, you know, it's all there. And to quote the late Senator Daniel Moynihan, right? um, uh, Everyone is entitled to their own facts, but not their own opinions. Sorry, reverse it. Their own opinions, but not their own facts. So you're entitled to your opinion, but the fact is, um, uh, th- those developments those developments did occur over the last twenty something years. When it comes to Gaza, that's a real tough one. Um, I, I want to just also say, and, and again, this may not sit well with people. When Israel withdrew from the Sinai and gave the territory back to Egypt, that was trading land for peace, no question about it, right? When Israel um, set out on what was clearly meant to be ultimately a pathway through Oslo towards a two-state solution, why do we know this? Because because that's what it emerged as. At Taba in 2000 and under Olmert, the negotiations were about an independent Palestinian state next to Israel. Arafat, by the way, showed himself unwilling to close the deal. It's a little more complicated, as I try to point out in the book, than the common talking points. But there's an opportunity that the Palestinian leadership uh, blundered, right? Um but when it comes to Gaza, Ariel Sharon, who who also arrived at um, at the same realization that that Rabin and Perez and Olmert and uh, Barack, really every prime minister except for the previous guy, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, we don't know about the current prime minister. He has said he is more in Bibi's camp, but who knows? Um, but but everyone except for Netanyahu, really since Rabin, and I include Ben Gurion for reasons that I explain in the book, has come to the conclusion that that Israel can either, uh, either uh, key, you know, there are three points on Israel's identity. It's a Jewish state, whatever that means. It is a democracy. And now it's in control of all this territory. And 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 as I wrote in, in September of 67, Ben-Gurion emerges from self-imposed exile to tell a bunch of uh, ecstatic 
you know, ebullient Israelis who do not listen to him and do not want to hear it, you, you got to give it back. You can't keep this and, and remain a Jewish democracy. And that that calculus hasn't changed, right? The game board has changed. It's we may be much further away from realizing that for reasons that we can discuss later, but the calculus hasn't changed. And Sharon realized that. But let's understand that what he did in Gaza, um, and I'm not even, I'm not critiquing it. There are plenty of Israelis left and right who will critique it. I'm just, again, stating the facts. He withdrew unilaterally. So by definition, he didn't exchange the territory for peace. He didn't work with the PA, or for that matter, Hamas, which was not the power at that point. It was the PA that was the power. He, he withdrew unilaterally. The Hamas charter is a different, a different thing entirely. The question, the question that I was asked was about the Palestinian charter, which I assume to mean the PA or PLO, which is the official uh, representative body of the Palestinian people, according to the Palestinian people and, and the international community. The Hamas charter and Hamas is something that we can talk about. That's true. Um, so when it comes to Hamas uh, or when it comes to Gaza, Israel withdrew unilaterally and didn't hand over the territory to the PA, which was partially uh, then um, th that was part of what uh, created the circumstances when after Hamas did better in a general PA election than the PA had thought, um, the the PA and Hamas uh, had a mini civil war, uh, which Hamas won and kicked the PLO out of and the PA out of Hamas, of Gaza, creating what is kind of the three state uh, situation that we have right now, as opposed to a two state. So you know, uh, Israelis ask a very good question, which is, how can we ever be comfortable withdrawing from territory after what happened in Gaza? But other Israelis will answer that with, well. Um, Tens of thousands of Israeli kids don't patrol the alleys of Gaza City, right, and 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 uh, and the refugee camps of Gaza anymore. Not since 2005 have they had to. So this is this is very difficult. But the but the PLO and the PA and the West Bank are also very difficult, very different from Gaza uh, and Hamas in, in, and from Hamas and Gaza. This is actually I, I want to come back to this um, because I feel like one of the one of the questions that many people ask is like, OK, like where where from here? Um, and Hamas is obviously a player, uh, even if they're a terrorist organization, you know, government that doesn't recognize the state of Israel. They, you know, rule Gaza. Um, so they're going to be players in whatever kind of final agreement gets arrived at. Um, you know, so I want to I want to hold on to that, yeah. you know, the question of Gaza and uh, where Hamas fits into this. Um, and Debbie just wrote in the chat. That was a fabulous answer. Thank you. I've been wanting to ask that question in different ways for several years for the sake of understanding. Um, thank you for the opportunity to do it here. Um, let's see. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. Um, Yael Silverberg, Urian. Um, let's, let's shift, let's shift the conversation a little bit. Um, earlier we were talking about anti-Semitism. Would you ask your question? Sure. So, um, in your, the other A word, um, chapter, the question of whether it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, but not other countries for similar bad behavior is certainly worth debating. That's your quotation. Um, uh, in my opinion, your opinion, as I suggest in the opening lines of this chapter, it depends. It depends on what? Well, I, I, I think it depends on uh, a number of circumstances. One, for example, is do we think that a Palestinian who's criticizing Israel, um, 
you know, and even saying, I don't want there to be an Israel. I just want there to be one democratic state where everyone is equal. Someone whose family or who they themselves or whose ancestors were essentially um, disenfranchised or, or dispersed from their, their home. Uh, I don't think that it's anti-Semitic for that person to feel that way. And, and, and if they say that about Palestine, but not about uh, Tibet or about, um, about, you know, um, the Uyghurs, uh, or for that matter, about Native Americans, I, I don't think there's anything anti-Semitic about that kind of um, singling out of Israel, right? Any more than there is um, something that's problematic about the fact that many of us focus on one thing that we care about. But in particular, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the funny things, okay, it's not funny, but one of the things that always vexes me is when um, people say, well, the founders of the BDS movement which I don't agree with, by the way, right, are anti-Semitic because they want Israel to be a democratic state. And, and I say, like, what, what are you talking about? They're Palestinians who were kicked out of their homes. What do you think they should want? So so that that is an ex- that is the main example of what I means by what I mean by it depends on the other side of, 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 of the story. You know, you have people who um, who are well aware of but would never suggest that Sudan or Syria or for that matter, Germany have forfeit their forfeited their right to exist as as independent states um, because of the atrocities that they that they carried out. Um, and I think that when those people insist that Israel alone has has forfeited its right and 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 thus the Jewish people's right to self determination, like that makes me scratch my head and makes me want to really ask them about what their motives and their their intentions are in singling out Israel that way. If someone says, look, I don't believe in nation states in general. I think that we should all live without borders. That's perfectly fine. If someone is a Palestinian or someone who sympathizes with Palestinians and says, look, I got nothing against Jews having self-determination, but there's been a historic wrong here that should be righted. And this is one way to write it. Those are things that I don't think are anti-Semitic. And I think that when there are people, you know, Amos Oz uh, uh, wrote a uh, uh, great Israeli peace activist and author. He wrote that when he was uh, when his father was a young man in Poland, he would see graffiti that said uh, Jews out of Poland. And now he sees graffiti that says Jews back to Poland. So, I mean, you know, sometimes we are put in in an impossible situation as a people. And when I see someone putting us in that kind of position, like I said, I think I question your motives. Thank you. And, and just uh, like a reminder for people, you um, point to Rabbi Jill Jacobs, the executive director of Trua, who, who brings four different sort of signposts to whether criticism of Israel is actually kind of beneath the surface anti-Semitic. Um, does it sort of paint Jews as these insidious influencers behind the scene of world events? Uh, does it deny Jewish history like the Holocaust or that like, oh, we don't have any connection to the land? Um, does it assume that the government of Israel speaks for all Jews everywhere? Um, or, vice that, versa. or that all Jews everywhere are somehow representatives of the state of Israel? Yes. Um, which like many people have told me they've experienced in their workplaces, you know, just like water cooler talk, you know, like you can explain to me why Israel just did it. And it's like, oh, my God, no, I can't. I don't know. Like, I, like I just woke up this morning. Um, I left one out, but, or is it just three? No, there were four, but, but. <laughs> I don't know where the fourth one went. Um, um, thank you. That was a great answer. Um, 
Okay, I'm turning you over to Irene, who has a very specific question about a very specific um, example in the book. So Irene, Irene, bring it and please read exactly what you sent to me. Okay. With respect to the story of Tamimi not being able to drive to the beach due to the Israeli checkpoints, you remember that, right? Mm -hmm. I can see the beach behind you. 70 kilometers and you can see the beach. Oh, there you yeah. No, your picture. I can see the beach. Oh, I can your see. Picture. All right. So I'm just wondering why he left out the following information. The town that he lives in, Nabi Salih, has been holding weekly marches against Israel since 2010. And while Basim Tamimi's intent of these marches is peaceful, violence usually erupts on both sides. And one of the residents from there, Alma Ahmed Al-Tamimi, is known for assisting in carrying out the spiral restaurant suiciding bombing in Jerusalem in 2001, right? And she comes from this town, population 600. I don't know if Tamimi is related to her, but they have the same last name and it's a small town. So I'm just wondering, and I'm wondering when this interview happened. So the interview happened about a year before COVID, but I'm going to offer. Um, okay, so let me just add one other question. 2018, Israel closed Nabi Sahib. So maybe I perhaps it was was it closed when you interviewed him? Because I would suspect that today, Basim can take his family to the Dead Sea. No, Basim can't take his family to. He 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 meant the Mediterranean, but no, he can't. Um, uh, because most of the time, people are denied entry into Israel, especially if, as you said, like Tamimi, he's an activist, a nonviolent activist his whole life. Look, you're absolutely right. There are regular protests, demonstrations in Nabi Saleh against Israel's occupation of Nabi Saleh, right? Uh, Nabi Saleh is in an area that, as you said correctly, straddles areas B and C. That is to say, area C, which is 60% plus of the entire territory of the West Bank, is controlled solely by Israel, and Area B splits its control. But the Israeli army r- rules Nabi Saleh. They decide who can come in and who can come out. They, not the Palestinian Authority, not the residents. They decide when people can get to the main road and when they can't, and they don't let residents like Tamimi go take their kids to the beach near Tel Aviv. So, so th- th- there, there's nothing in, in, in the description that you read that I would disagree with. The one thing I would gently push back on is uh, I don't, you know, collective punishment, that is to say, an entire geographic area uh, can't be punished for the acts of criminals who come from it. I mean, we know that. Uh, we would never suggest that the terrorists who come from American towns or cities and do horrible things, uh, blowing up, uh, you know, a federal building or, or, or undertaking a school shooting, that in those cases, the whole town should be to blame or even the extended families of the people from, from whence the terrorists came. But I will tell you that uh, that a couple of years before I was in Nebisala sitting with uh, with Tamimi, um, his daughter became something of an icon uh, out there in the in the anti occupation circles when she slapped uh, an Israeli soldier in the face, uh, which I can I think we can all agree is both uh, not a it is a rude. Uh, a, a gesture, but not a lethal one, right? After uh, the the platoon of Israeli soldiers that were breaking up the weekly demonstration shot her cousin in the eye with a rubber bullet. I, I saw him 
when I was with Tamimi a couple of years ago, and he is permanently disfigured. She was a 16-year-old girl, hysterical at what she saw. The villagers were and always are unarmed, right? The Israelis are not. Uh, again, it, this is, I, I understand it's uncomfortable, but these are protests against the Israeli occupation in their village that happen on a regular basis. Um, as Tamimi said to me, as I think I said in the book, or I don't remember if this is in the book, we resisted the Ottomans, we, resist the, we resisted the British, we resisted the Jordanians, and now we resist the Israelis. We want our own freedom and our own independence. So, you know, the fact that, that, that Tamimi and Nebesala are activists against the occupation, I, I guess I don't, I don't find any compelling evidence there that that in any way undermines the legitimacy or, 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 or um, humanity of their, their claims. Even if the bomber of Sparrow came from this town, population 600, but hold on. And if they just let everybody go, what guarantee is there that there wouldn't be more violence? How do you handle that? So so first of all, the fact that the bomber came from that town is, you know, obviously the, the bombing is a horrific act of terrorism. But again, do you suggest that we um, punish every town that some violent criminal comes from in our country? I mean, it's a rhetorical question because your answer has to be no. So when when you say no to we don't believe in that kind of collective punishment, here's what I want to make clear. Tamimi wants to take his kids to the beach, but that's not the main issue. Where those Palestinians can't go is anywhere in the West Bank, unless Israelis let them through the checkpoints. If you look at the maps of the West Bank, areas A, B, and C look like Swiss cheese, totally controlled by Israel. All of the movement is controlled by Israel. The only reason for that, right, right, and I'm now not talking about who gets into Israel proper, right? Let's say for the sake of argument, Israel says no West Bank Palestinians can come into Israel proper. They don't say that because they let day laborers in and they let people in from time to time. But let's say that they, they have the right to do that. Israel's Israel. The West Bank is not Israel. The problem is over the last 54 years, Israel has moved almost three quarters of a million of its Jewish civilians into new towns and communities and villages that it has built in the West Bank. And that is the only reason why those checkpoints, the internal checkpoints between West Bank communities and cities exist. They don't exist to um, make sure that Palestinians don't go to Sparrow and do something terrible or to prevent them from going to the beach. They exist to prevent them from getting anywhere near the settlers and the settlements that Israel has built in that territory. So again, it may be that you think, I don't mean you, Irene, I mean one, right? I mean you too, all of us. It may be that one of, that we think the settlements are wonderful, they're terrific, they're what God intended, they're, they're great policy, or we may think uh, that they're terrible, that they're a cancer that's eating Israel's democracy and obviating the possibility of a two-state solution. But let's just be very clear. Internal checkpoints are there to protect those settlers and those settlements, which are built on land that Israel occupied, which is something that a country is allowed to do after a war, and then moved a 10%, 10% of its civilian population into over the last half century, which is something that a country is not allowed to do. That's a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention to which Israel is a signatory. And, and Levi Eshkol, the prime minister during the Six-Day War, his own legal advisor said after the Six-Day War, hey, one thing we can't do, people, we can't move civilians into that territory. Well, of course, they didn't listen to the legal advisor, and that's why we're in this mess. That's why the Israeli army is inside Nebesala, not to not to make sure that Nebesala residents don't go into Israel, to make sure Nebesala residents don't go anywhere in the West Bank uh, where there are settlers. And and again, I I apologize if that uh, makes people uncomfortable, but that's the reality. 
Ooh. Um, well, actually, you know what? So Greg just, um, Greg just put in the chat because the Judea and Samaria are Israel. So could you actually respond to that response? Sure. Yeah, Thank that's you. a, that's a kind of simple one. Uh, Judea and Samaria as, as, as the biblical territories of the West Bank are referred to by some Jews and, and many Israelis, um, are absolutely the heartland of the Jewish people. They are the place from whence our story begins. But they are absolutely not Israel. And, 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 and I'm not sure if Greg means that literally or figuratively, but the fact is, um, they're not Israel. Israel has not annexed them. Uh, even when Benjamin Netanyahu in three successive elections promised his base that if reelected, if able to form a government, he would annex the territories. Even after Donald Trump said, you can do it now on my watch. They didn't annex the territories. Now, the reason they didn't annex the territories is, you know, kind of a why buy the cow when you get the milk for free. Um, annexing the territories would make legal and 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 politically evident to everyone um, something that is already the case, which is that Israel is settling the territories. Um, people like me believe that is not only wrong, but 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 crazy for Israel because it is obviating Ben-Gurion's triangle. It's making it impossible for Israel ever to withdraw itself from these territories. So what's the plan? Are they going to give 2.9 million Palestinians the vote? They are not. And so what do you call a situation like that when you annex a territory and you don't give millions of people the vote and you elevate one population over another population based on an immutable characteristic of birth? Well, I deal with that nightmare potential in the chapter called the A word in this book. Uh, but but the, the the easy answer to Greg's question is that they're not Israel. Um, I, I, I'll tell you a funny little story, right? Uh, I was interviewed by Ma, uh, a newspaper called Makori Shon a few years ago. It's a right-wing religious newspaper, um, editorially, very much where Greg's comment is. Um, but they're a good, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like it's a real newspaper and they're serious about doing their work. It's not like a it's not like Israel Hayom or a tabloid. Um, and they wanted to interview me. And the the interviewer was a young reporter, smart guy, very sweet guy, who, when he introduced himself to me, told me where he was from. And where he was from was from a settlement <clears throat> that is in the Gush Etzion block of Jewish settlements over the Green Line built in Judea near near Bethlehem um, on the site of previous uh, Jewish settlements that that were lost in the War of Independence. Okay. So that, that, that when, when the land was occupied by Jordan. So we were talking and he asked me at one point, uh, there had just been an election in Israel, it was 2015, I think. And he said, uh, you know, how do you feel about the election? And I said, look, we don't, we don't take a uh, position on partisan issues, but we care about, about, about partisan politics, but we care about issues and values. And there, of course, we have some real concerns. He said, well, give me an example of one. I said, well, I'll give you an example. Um, in the election that you just had, you voted, right? But the people who live in the same territory that you live in, who weren't Jewish, were not allowed to vote. I said, you don't live in Israel and you were allowed to vote. And people who also live in that territory were not. And he said to me, what are you talking about? I do live in Israel. You know, I live in Gush Etzion. And I said, your government, even your government, has not annexed that territory. Even the Israeli government doesn't dare claim that Gush Etzion is in Israel. It's not in Israel. It's in the occupied territories, or as the Israelis like to say, the disputed 
territories. But but even the right wing government of Israel has not annexed those territories. And he said, you know what? I never thought about it like that. So Israel has gone a long way to erase the green line, the division between the West Bank and Israel proper in the minds of Israelis and, of course, in the minds of many American Jewish supporters of Israel. Um, but that that doesn't change the reality. Like I said, people can have their own opinion, but but you can't have your own facts. And as the reporter suddenly realized with the light bulb going off, um, that is not Israel, right? So Judea and Samaria are a lot of things, but they are not part of the state of Israel. And not even the Israelis claim that they are. So it seems important to make distinctions between what people, what people can all agree were part of the biblical greater Israel and what is part of the modern state of Israel. Right. And to actually be quite clear when you're talking about Israel, which Israel you're talking about, right. the modern state of Israel, the biblical land of Israel, how much of the biblical land of Israel, um, because phrases like Judea and Samaria are references to biblical like biblical land. Correct. Yeah. Um, all right, Jojo, you're up. And and oh, Jojo, you can say something about where you just came from. Oh, uh, cool. Well, uh, Dan and I here uh, are in Albuquerque, uh, but we used to be members of the kitchen. And I think we've met you at some point in time, uh, Daniel, um, at uh, any number of things with um, regard to that. But uh, I'm very excited to ask my question and read it exactly as it was written, uh, which is, what is your perspective on the Jewish philanthropic industry's focus on taking people to uh, visit Israel? Does it improve or exacerbate the divide between American and Israeli Jews or Bridget? Um, and what are other effects that you see from this focus? Well, um, that's also a first for me that someone's asked me that question. It's nice to see you both. Um, so uh, like so many of my annoying answers, um, one that we already had, it depends. Um, uh the, the 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 when we say the Jewish philanthropic industry or, or however you described it right th there are there are lots of facets to it and lots of pieces to it. My first trip to Israel was on a UJA mission when I was 16 years old. I did not get like a particularly balanced perspective at that point. But then again, in 1984, like American Jews and Israelis, we weren't even thinking. Of, I mean, you know, think about that. Like the the time that's elapsed between 1967 and 1984. And the time that's elapsed between 1984 and now is so massively different that people weren't really thinking about it in those days. Look, I think uh, some of you know I led a big city federation, the third largest federation uh, here in San Francisco for a very interesting 14 months. And we did Israel trips. And honestly, like I think, you know, it, it's true I was the CEO, but but I didn't plan these trips. But we always made sure that there was some uh, attempt to provide a, a myriad of views. I have no idea what those trips are like now, but at least that year. If you go to Israel with the new Israel Fund, if you go to Israel with J Street, if you go to Israel with Americans for Peace Now, if you go to Israel with some of the URJ trips, the Union of Reform Judaism, I think you. I think if you go to Israel with the emergent trips, you go uh, uh, with people who are intent on really trying to. Um, uh, uh, sh 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 by the way, I'm sorry. I, I don't look at the chat, but it was my. Um, my colleague, Andrew, who wrote this. So a gentle corrective to my beloved Andrew. In those days, the UJA was not just the Federation in New York. It was the United 
Jewish appeal. It was a, it was the largest Jewish philanthropy in the world outside of Israel. And um, it is a shadow of itself now, which if you ever have me back to talk about the Federation, uh, I'll t- I can give you my opinion. But, um, but, but now UJA Federation means New York. And that's because as the great former director there, John Rusquet, a brilliant brilliant professional once told me, he said, if they weren't going to use the brand UJA, if they were dumb enough to throw that away, I was going to take it. So um, just like a great branding uh, story there. So anyway, um, so I think it really, you know, uh, one of my favorite organizations out there is a little one called Encounter. Some of you may know it. And Encounter takes uh, Jewish leaders around the country um, to to the West Bank. It doesn't proselytize. It doesn't propagandize. Just sort of introduces people to real live Palestinians, real live settlers. They have an att- an opportunity to really meet people. Um, so so when it comes to trips to Israel or trips to the West Bank, I think that there's a myriad of options, and some of them tend to reinforce the narrative that I believe is in need of evolution and critique. And some of them, I think, really respond to the understanding that we need to be more complex and more nuanced. Um, in general, though, uh, the, for me, scary truth is that the numbers of American Jews who travel with American Jewish institutions to Israel is much, much smaller than the number of evangelical dispensationalist Christians who travel to Israel from around the world with um, with what what are known as Christian Zionist organizations, which have a very different theological uh, imperative than even religious Jews when it comes to Israel and who have a very different, as a result of that, political orientation, which does not have a lot of interest and nuance in a way that I think most American Jewish organizations at least try to, to, to provide. Mm. That's interesting. That is not where I thought you were going to go with that. But um, um, but actually, um, Linda Daly, would you ask your question? Because I feel like that actually follows up on on a segue I didn't know was coming. Sure. Um, I was curious to know, with traditionally the Jewish support for Israel has been people who were affected by the Holocaust or or children of the Holocaust. And as that generation is dying out, and now the main support in this country seems to be like right-wing Christian organizations. How does that, you know, what does the future look like? Well, that's the hundred million dollar question that, 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 that you just asked Linda, that, that, um, now you're bringing my Federation and my NIF hats together uh, and the book together. Look, the answer to that question is I don't know. Uh, the the American Jews are still very attached to Israel, but as the Pew study and the Gallup studies show, uh, that is decreasing with younger American Jews. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, interestingly, just given my last comment, it's also decreasing with young evangelical Christians. Um when they're asked in these studies about why they're one of the things that the Jewish institutions like to say is that that's because of intermarriage and assimilation. And I don't buy it. I'm not saying that, that those things don't um, fray certain bonds of Jewish communal uh, um, connection. Uh, but I, I don't I don't buy that. That's what's happening when it comes to Israel. I think when it comes to Israel, what we see is, um, uh, you know, I, I had a debate with another a very friendly debate with uh, 
virtual at Harvard Hillel with a with a, an, an author of a book that's a, not dissimilar to mine in its intention, but but comes from a different place. And um, she said, well, I, she said she thought her job was trying to correct Israel's PR problem. And and I queried whether she felt that Israel just had a PR problem or maybe it had a policy problem and that the PR problems are in some respects, not in all, the result of the policy problem. And I think that when it comes to young American Jews who are liberal, right, 75% or more American Jews vote for Democrats. And, and that's, that number is only increasing as, 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 as the generations um, shift and rise. So you have young American Jews who are liberal, like all American Jews, overwhelmingly so, overwhelmingly identify with the Democratic Party. And you have an Israel that feels, or at least felt until recently, I think that that's an, there's an interesting thing happening now, an Israel that had been moving, certainly under the tenure of Benjamin Netanyahu, more and more to the right, aligning itself firmly with uh, President Trump, uh, firmly with the Republican Party, firmly against Barack Obama. And that um, that pushed many American Jews away from uh, Israel. Um, and I believe that people watch what's happening and they 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 see. Right. And so that vector of drift and disaffiliation that always existed um, as as Israel sort of went this way and American Jews went that way is accelerated. Um, and I think, frankly, and again, this is my opinion, um, I write about it in the book. Nothing accelerated that more than the bromance between Bibi and Trump, which, for those of you who are interested in these things, has been taking quite a new turn the last 48 hours as reports of what Trump said to Barack Ravid, one of the deans of Israeli journalism, uh, in his new book that was just released two days ago. Uh, Mr. Trump had some choice words for Mr. Netanyahu, which um, I, I would think many of you would find interesting. So so I guess Wait, wait, wait. For the for people who who didn't keep up, will you just, you know, update us? Yeah. Uh Trump was interviewed by Barack Ravid and he was classically Trumpian. He said, um, he he lied. He said Bibi Netanyahu was the first person to recognize Joe Biden. In fact, Bibi Netanyahu waited 10 days <laughs> to recognize Joe Biden. He was by far not the first. And then Trump said, uh, F him. F Netanyahu, he said. Uh, he didn't say F. He used the whole four letter word. Uh, he then claimed that without him, Israel would have been destroyed uh, by now. That, and then he said, perhaps most damning of all, you know, he said uh, he's a BS artist. He says he, he wants peace. I know him. He does not want peace. By the way, it's one of the few things that 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 Trump has ever said that I actually agree with. Right. Which is that certainly not in the terms that anyone has ever thought. Uh, I mean, I think he wants peace. He would like the Palestinians to shut up and go away, but not in terms of of the kinds of diplomatic uh, processes that have happened so far. And Trump called him out on it in his, you know, horrible, bullying, lying way, which I just think exposes the vulnerability of relationships built by neo-authoritarians on political expediency. Um, but when it comes to, uh, just to finish the, my thought about uh, my answer to the question, I think that there is another way. I think introduce, this is going to sound incredibly organizationally self-serving, but then again, uh, I was a supporter of New Israel Fund since 2000, uh, since 1992. So I come to it honestly. I think when American Jews meet the kinds of activists that NIF supports, when they meet the extraordinary Israelis who are working every day to build a better, fairer country for all of its residents, they're inspired. You know, one of the things I'm very, very proud of is that um, it is not a left-right issue so much in Israel. You know, the, there's a right-wing 
Israel Hasbara, American Jewish establishment industry that sets out to demonize and denigrate New Israel Fund and J Street and Encounter and any rabbi who dares say anything critical about Israel. Do you know who our supporters are in Israel? Former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, uh, former President Ruby Rivlin, the current president, Bougie Herzog, former head of Shin Bet, Carmi Gilon, right? Like, There are lots of Israelis, not just sort of the left wing flank, which also support NIF, but pillars of Israeli society who recognize that even if you don't agree with human rights organizations, right, even if you don't agree with civil rights organizations, if you want to be a democracy, you have to have them. And I think introducing young American Jews to those people, to those people who share their values and who are working in the same way that so many progressive Americans are working to repair our country, that's the best answer I can give for how you connect people to Israel in a way that will mean something to them. And that's why it's one of the reasons I include in my last chapter, these three extraordinary people who, um, you know, they'd make anyone fall in love with that place, but they'd make them fall in love with the real place, not the fiction that we all learn from Leon Uris or that, you know, the, 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 Anyway, you take my point. Okay. I am going to, I'm going to smush together about four questions that are sort of circling around the same thing. Um, And so for, for Kath, for Kathy and Lori and Michael and Eve, um, forgive me. I had four separate questions, but I'm just going to weave them together. Um, When thinking about resolving issues, you know, like the issue, the conflict, um, such as the Israeli presence in the West Bank. Um, so we understand there are 500 or 500,000 or so residents um, that live in the West Bank. Um, and there's, you know, demand for economically viable living alternatives that the West Bank surely offers. Um like what, what, what is, you know, what is the possible solution? And now I'll go back to Kathy, Kathy and Lori were sort of coming from different places, but around the same, like, can we talk about a two state solution? If that's both not what the on the ground reality looks like it lends itself to at this point. Um, But also if it's not what most Israelis or Palestinians want, um, like, are we just having this conversation about two states now in a bubble of mostly liberal people who actually aren't in tune with what Israelis <laughs> and Palestinians actually want, which then gets to Michael and Eve's uh, question, which has to do with, um, you know, like, does a one state frame, what do you think of the one state framework? Um, well, has legal protections for all peoples, et cetera. Thank you for that combination question. Um, I, I was asked uh, in that same Harvard Hillel debate, um, we, we, we were each asked, what's a position on Israel, anything that you don't agree with, but you respect? And my answer was uh, what you just said, right? The, the, the people um, who say, why can't there be one democratic state where people's collective rights to live with some you know, modicum of Jewish self-determination and Palestinian self-determination and their individual rights to live in a free, open, fair, egalitarian, equal society with their civil and human rights guaranteed. <clears throat> like, who wouldn't want that? I mean, most of us who are Americans, that's where we would naturally gravitate. There's a joke here to make about that's what we'd like for our own country. But, you know, um, the problem is uh, the bubble, the liberal bubble that you described, Rabbi, 
um, is really around that idea, which is not, I'm not interested in denigrating it, right? Like, I think when some people say there shouldn't be a state of Israel, there should just be one country, they're completely um, ignorant of the reality of Jewish history and the need for safety and self-determination, which exists as is evidenced by some of the people on our Zoom call with us today who were alive and sentient beings when Hitler tried to murder every Jew in the world, right? So that's why there needs to be, like, history doesn't end, you know, and 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 Jews have learned over 2,000 years that you got to be really careful. And, and you know, um, 100 years of relative peace for Jews who live in, not even relative peace, of relative safety who live in Israel uh, or and, and America, you know, doesn't mean that the plight of the Jews in the world is, is, is ended. But even if you, but let's say you're, again, let's say you're a Palestinian who was, was, was uh, dispossessed, uprooted uh, from their land during what, what for Jews was the war of independence and the, and the salvation of the establishment of Israel, but for Palestinians was the Nakba of their exile. You know, it, it's certainly not anti-Semitic uh, to call, to, to, to want that if you're, if you're a Palestinian, right. Or, or even if you're just a well-meaning supporter. But I think that that's the thing that's mostly in the liberal bubble right now. My friend, Peter Beinart wrote, you know, a, a piece in the New York times saying, that's what I'm for now. And, um, Friends in Israel who are real dyed-in-the-wool leftists who have paid their dues, who served as government ministers and and peace activists, you know, they kind of chuckled, right? Saying like, well, that's sweet for Peter to say on the Upper West Side. But the fact is, here, nobody really wants that. Yes, increasingly people might, and there are all kinds of interesting things cooking at the grassroots level, confederation ideas and other ideas, and we shouldn't poo-poo any of them, and we should... You know, I mean, we should watch them all as they develop. But right now, of all the impossible seeming ideas, the least impossible one, in in my opinion, right, is still the two state solution for which there is not a lack of political creativity, just a lack of political will. Right. Of the it's 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 much closer to three quarters of a million than half a million settlers and Jewish civilians living in the West Bank and and East Jerusalem over the Green Line. But the vast majority of them, close to between 80 and 90 percent, live in settlements that in every serious uh, phase of the peace process, which has pretty much been dead since Olmert left office and went to jail. Um, but but who knows, right? Every single one imagined that the vast majority of the settlers, including, by the way, Gush Etzion, where my friend the reporter came from, everyone accepted on both sides, the Palestinian and the Israeli side, as well as the international community, the part of a resolution would be appending those settlements and big ones like Ma'ale Adumim to Israel proper in exchange for territory carved out of the Arava or Northern Negev that would go to the new state of Palestine. For sure, the emergence of Hamas in Gaza like super complicates that. But the outline of some kind of peace, at least some kind of settlement between Israel and the West Bank PA territory is, again, not the result of a lack of political creativity or options. It's a lack of political will, which has existed on both sides at various points in time. So it does seem really hard right now. And maybe it will become impossible. And if it becomes impossible, back to my friend Tamimi, you know, then more and more Palestinians will just say, okay, fine, I give up. I want the vote. I don't know what Israel does then. Um, I think that faced with that prospect, most Israelis would say, let's disentangle. Okay, I got I, I got the memo that you um, need to go. I wondered if we could have one more question of that that for you will be a softball because I feel like this is the question that you were born to answer. So, Alyssa, can you bring us home with your just the, the whole thing that you wrote? Um, 
I feel like mine was actually pretty similar to what was asked, but um, really well, struggling with what um, a path forward for a just society in Israel looks like, particularly given the success in creating facts on the ground in form of settlements. And I guess, so then beyond that, beyond what you just talked about in terms of the two-state solution, what would you like to see the progressive diaspora community um, advocating for? And then, and then I'm going to add to that. What can people here do? What, you know, a lot of people want to know what they can do. So look, uh, we've talked a lot today. In fact, interestingly, more than I have in any of these other book talks uh, about the West Bank and the two-state solution. And, and, and I'm glad because I do think that that is at the heart of, of the problem and, and the challenge and the conflict. But there's a lot of other stuff out there too, um, challenges that Israel faces, right? I'm an optimist, and I actually believe Israel, um, with love and support from the rest of us, can figure some of this stuff out. But my honest, candid answer, right, to to the question of, like, kind of what should we be supporting before I get to what should we do? What's the vision look like? Is is this one. Um, I think we, as, 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 as Americans who care about Israel, have to re- recognize deep in, in our hearts at, at, at the bone level. If we want what 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 you described, Elisa, right? A just society. Twenty one percent of the population of the state of Israel. I'm not talking about the West Bank. I'm not talking about Gaza. Twenty one percent of the population of the state of Israel are Arab citizens of Israel, right? They uh, that's contrast that was thirteen percent of the American population, which is black. So it's like a significantly larger proportion of the country. On paper, there's equality. Um, what we know is that up until uh, halfway through the year 1966, uh, Israeli Arabs were largely governed by a military governor, right? The sections of Israel where, again, I understand this might sound outrageous to people. All I can tell you is it's not my opinion. It's just the facts, right? Um this is because they were worried. The Israeli authorities were worried that this could be a, f- a fifth column. This could be an untrustworthy group. Of course, in the history of the state of Israel, that's never actually been the case. Um, but they were worried. And so they put the territory where most Israeli Arabs lived in the Triangle, in the Galilee, in the Negev, under military governance until 1966. By the way, that meant that you there was a curfew. You couldn't travel where and when you wanted. You had to show your checkpoint and IDs within Israel, Israeli citizens. That ended in 66. And then in 67 came the war and Israel's uh, uh, the, the, the conquest of the, the capture of the territories and the occupation. So some Israeli historians talk about Israel being a full, free, open open democracy for one year, right? Or like eight months. Um, The thing that we American Jews need to understand is that there is no future for a democratic Israel that in any way resembles not our American values, but the founding values enshrined in, in the 13th and 14th paragraph of Israel's Declaration of Independence that is not a shared Jewish Arab future. Now, this is a place where I feel really optimistic and hopeful. That's because Um, In this coalition government that was formed in May against all odds, it is a government of the the right, center, left and Arab parties with uh, with one of the opposition parties, also an Arab party that is mostly in line with the left and centrist parties in the coalition. Um, The right wing Islamist uh, uh, party that went into the I mean, I shouldn't call them right wing, the conservative Islamist party that went into coalition uh, that is now part of the ruling coalition was first offered an invitation by Netanyahu to join his coalition. 
That means a Rubicon has been crossed in Israel. That means that um, from the right to the left, Israeli politicians and the Israeli public understand that there can be no future for Israel. There will be no Israeli democracy that is not a shared democracy, that is not one that fully embraces the, the, the necessity of equality for Arabs and Jews together. And so uh, that gives me a lot of hope, but it's also something that I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize, right? If we don't support an Israel that is truly shared, that offers total and real equality to its non-Jewish citizens, its Arab citizens, um, then, then, then we are not contributing to what must happen if Israel is ever to actually resolve the conflict with the Palestinians living in the West Bank. And what we can do is educate ourselves. Right. If you want to know what's happening in Israel, there is there is nothing better than reading the Israeli press. Haaretz, which is one of the best and most accessible, has a great English language website. There's a paywall. I would encourage you all to pay. But Ynet, which is connected to Yidiot Achronot, uh, uh, one of Israel's larger tabloid newspapers, is also available. Uh, uh, you can check out the Times of Israel. Um, educate yourselves. Uh, uh, I would say, uh, keep current, read, learn, talk about it like you're doing, um, and 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 go when we can when we can go again, and then support those organizations. I obviously would say New Israel Fund is a great example um, that are working to empower those Israelis who are trying to do all of the things that we just discussed uh, in their own country. Wow! Thank you, thank you, Daniel. Um, thank, you. thank all of you for sticking around. Um, hang on one second here. Um, thank, I just want to say thank you again. Um, I know you've got to go. So I guess I will say to you, thank you for giving us so much to think about and talk about. Um, I know for some people, they came into this book group wanting to sort of uh, hone and burnish their own unformed ideas, sort of gut feelings um, that they sort of uh, were hoping to develop more articulation around and the book helped. And other people came in with very well-formed opinions that even reading the book helped challenge or make even um, make even smarter um, by being in dialogue with you. And I feel like all of us are a little bit smarter um, by being in dialogue with somebody who brings so much love and um, and experience to the conversation. So thank you. Um, well, thank you all. Like I said, I'm really honored that you did this and, and super happy that you invited me to be with you. I'm, I'm kind of blown away. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, Tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.